0: My name is Elaine Beale, and I'm a writer living in Oakland, California, where I've lived for the last 17 years. The story I'm going to read is um, nonfiction, with all the incidents mentioned taking place in the last several months of 2006. The names of the children and my neighbours have been changed to protect their identities. Otherwise, everything else is the truth. The increasing crime rate. When she calls the dog, it cowers. The voice, I see, is punishment enough. Come here, she yells again, and the dog cringes lower. Head curled away, body collapsed but tensing. Almost an invitation to the inevitable blow. I recognise that stance, I think. No, I feel it. Imprinted on the body, tattooed through skin and into muscle. ''Get inside,'' she yells, and a hand comes down on the dog's averted muzzle, hollow, the sound of hard flesh against space and bone. I open my mouth to say stop, to say something, but words hang silent. The dog slinks inside. The woman slams the door. I meet Jeanette on the street, her skinny frame, a scarecrow's silhouette on the wind-blown sidewalk. Always the lipstick, damp, berry-coloured, no matter how wild and matted her hair. I see her mouth moving, arms waving in loose, double-jointed gestures. I'm wearing my headphones. I don't want to take them off. Jeanette, always the bringer of bad news. She used to leave frequent messages on my answering machine fast, breathless, almost furtive, about the drugs and crime and commotion in the apartment building across the street. She'd call me because the police and the apartment manager wouldn't listen. You have to do something, she'd say. We have to make it stop. Sometimes I wondered how much was real and how much she'd imagined. After I'd organised the neighbours and we got the management company to evict the dealer... Things are quieted down a lot. And Jeanette has the energy about her, a constant agitation, as if she needs the world outside to confirm the storm that blows within. Elaine, Elaine, I see her mouthing, moving toward me with fierce and increasing speed. I smile and take my headphones off. And then she tells me about the new director at the recreation centre, The guy with the dreads who's been doing such great things with the kids. He had an argument with a girl who wanted to log onto her MySpace account on one of the center's computers. She left, brought back three relatives. They beat him with a metal chair and fractured his skull. There was blood everywhere, just everywhere, Jeanette says. For a living, I write grant proposals... My clients are organisations providing medical services to the homeless and HIV positive, employment training programmes, agencies serving Oakland youth. I research statistics to bolster the need statements I draft, scour newspaper archives, reports, studies on the web. I've become a genius at skim reading, harvesting the pertinent facts like pieces of ripe fruit. For a violence prevention proposal I'm writing to the California Department of Corrections, the client gives me a map of Oakland. It shows the places where the shootings in the first six months of the year occurred. In the hills, the affluent areas, there are only two. In the flatlands, the dots pepper the map like gunshots themselves. My own neighbourhood has a few. Most, though, are clustered further below the freeway and to the east and west, the poor and mostly black neighbourhoods, though there's been a big rise in murders of Latinos this year. When I begin work on the proposal, the number of murders stands at 120 for the year so far. By the time it's done, there have been five more. When I finish, I feel tainted, as if being to paid to write this means I profit from all this death. There were more murders in Oakland this year than in Britain, the place I grew up in. What am I doing here sometimes, I ask myself. The violence I knew was hidden, indoors. It did not kill. It simply ate at hope and confidence and self-respect. It's an old song whose tune I can sing at a moment's notice. It's still playing inside my head. You're like me, my friend Jamie tells me when I complain how much the crime and violence gets to me. You're a sponge. She's right. I seep it up and it swills around in my stomach. Acid butterflies. My partner Zusa is different. She has to be. She works in the county hospital emergency department. Highland. You just say the name and everybody sighs and nods. It's the regional trauma centre. They get all the gunshot wounds and car accidents. She doesn't talk about it much. What's the worst thing, I ask her. The families, she says, without hesitation. Their faces while they wait. The sounds they make when they get the bad news. In the summer, I go backpacking in the Sierra Nevada mountains with Zusa and my dog. We walk through massive meadows of lupins, goldenrod, paintbrush, purple, yellow, red against brilliant summer green. There are views across peaks and lakes, the jagged granite profile of the eastern Sierra. The nights are mostly moonless, filled with immensity and stars. I could stay forever here, I think, in all this beauty, reduced to a body that walks and breathes and eats and sleeps. When I get back home, my neighbour tells me about the rape. An 89-year-old woman at 8.30 in the morning in her front yard. It's six blocks from my house. On the route, I take my dog for a walk most mornings. What kind of person, my neighbour asks, would do something like that? I am driving through the shopping area close to my house. There's a funeral in the church on MacArthur Boulevard that once must have been a movie theatre with its big foyer, the painted-over marquee, out front. The mourners crowd the street. They're so young, teenagers in black sweatshirts and baggy black pants. A few older men in suits and ties stand along the sidewalk. There's one white man among them. I know without having to ask, that the person being mourned was murdered. I can feel it. It's in the expressions and the energy on the street. It's a heaviness that sits like cold air on water, settling frozen in the faces like ice. When my mother died, it was so sudden, so unexpected, it felt like an explosion. Boom, there's a crater in your life. I was a cracked shell, leaking sadness and anger. I flipped people off on the freeway, went off on a woman who cut me off on the street, ranted more than ever about the news. When I was walking my dog in the neighbourhood and a woman yelled at me, called me a fucking dyke because her dogs were barking and trying to jump the fence, something snapped. I got in her face, index finger jabbing air. I could taste her breath. I know where you live, you fucking bigot, I said, glad to see her fear. Afterwards, I wondered what had happened to myself. If grief does this to everyone, if the streets are filled with people raw with loss. The woman who hit the dog is my new neighbour, the kids tell me, my little half-baked family. I've known them for more than seven years. There are four of them, Daniel, who's nine and the youngest, Tina, 12, Imani, 15, Lorraine, now amazingly 17. I've watched them grow up, witness to how much parents and strife and poverty can shape personality and expectation. But you've done so much for them, my friends say, and I nod, But though I know what a difference care and attention can make to a child, it feels like a small ripple on endless water. I feed them sometimes. I help with homework. We go to the movies and the beach. Sometimes Lorraine and I cook together cookies and pies and chocolate cake. And when they weren't being sent to school, I called Child Protective Services. CPS told me to call the school district. The school district told me to call CPS. It was only when I finally called someone I knew through a grant proposal I worked on who was on the school board that anything was done. I used to think their mother, Michelle, was on drugs. She's so hyper, her life chaotic, fury spilling out in the brittle tone of her voice. But now I think she's just one more woman who needed help and never got it. A woman dependent on a man who's mean and abusive. A woman who is poor. A woman who is mentally ill. I love the way the girls come over, striding through the door, open up the fridge and say, have you got any orange juice? The way they laugh at Zusa when she forgets herself and curses in front of them again. The way Tina saves money in a piggy bank she keeps on Zusa's shelf. The way they call on Saturday afternoons and ask if I want to hang out. And I hate that I cannot rescue them. That I am witness, once again, to something I cannot put right. I told my mum you said that grown-ups shouldn't hit kids, Tina says. That's right, I answer, rubbing the bony arch of her back. There are rules in our house. No hitting, no calling anybody stupid, no being mean. It's impossible for Tina and Daniel to follow them. I make a point of sitting between them on the couch. I remember that desperation, battling my siblings in the face of scarcity, how I was so furious at them when they stole from my small portion of love. The kids are moving, soon. The woman who hits her dog and her boyfriend have bought the duplex the kids have lived in all their lives. There are few renters' rights in Oakland. They have to be out by the end of the year. I'm glad we're leaving, Michelle says, when Zuzra and I bump into her in the neighbourhood store. Oakland's terrible, just terrible. Things are getting worse and worse. And then she goes through a litany of the city's woes. In the seven years I've known her, it's been virtually her only topic of conversation. In the store, her voice gets more and more shrill. She talks so quickly it's almost impossible to interrupt her, to do anything in response except nod. In the past, I've found myself walking backwards down the street, Michelle following me, still continuing to talk. I'm going to miss the kids, I say. I really hope we can stay in touch. But she skates over my words like they're glass and she's just sliding. She goes on and on with her rant. Sousa and I exchange looks. I make a more decisive interjection. We've got to go, Michelle, I say, and we turn quickly towards the door. It's three in the morning, I can't sleep. I get up, pull a blanket over me on the sofa, lie down and read. My mind is racing, it's almost impossible to concentrate on my book. And then the shot, then another "'Explosions that sear the quiet and send spasms through my limbs. "'I lie still for a long time, listening, but there's only silence. "'I pull the blanket tighter, but I can't seem to get warm. "'There was a shooting across the street. "'It's four years ago now. "'It was right outside the kids' place "'when Gloria was living in the one-bedroom apartment next door.' Gloria, who was a disabled diabetic and an addict who dealt heroin, whose adult sons slept in bunk beds in the garage. Sons who were out on parole and in a gang and played music so loud on their car stereo that the windows in our house rattled with every bass note. And who, when I went out and asked them to turn it down, said, ''Sorry, ma'am,'' and immediately turned it off. Sons whose friends staged a sideshow on our street... Zuzer and I were away for the weekend. When we came back, our next-door neighbour, Antonio, showed us the dent in his fence where it had been hit after someone skidded out from the figure 8s they'd been turning in this tiny intersection. This, he told us, had gone on till two in the morning. And of course, despite the calls, the police never showed up. The shooting was a drive-by. One of Gloria's sons was hit in the arm. He wasn't badly hurt. She's dead now. It was the heroin, or the diabetes, or both. The sons are back in prison, I think. There was a man killed around the corner because he saw some people trying to steal his car. He went outside to challenge them. They shot him. And there are the women, of course, the one killed on 35th Avenue by her ex-boyfriend, the woman they talked about on the news whose body was found dumped in a trash bag in a storm drain. The woman bound, gagged, doused with petrol and set on fire in the Temescal. Zuzsa told me about that one. They treated her at Highland. Third-degree burns over 90% of her body. The woman who disappeared, whose body has not yet been found. When I first moved to the States, I took domestic violence hotline calls. When I told the callers it wasn't their fault, I was also telling it to myself. Now it's the women on my street who confide in me. Denise wanted me to serve Leon the divorce papers. Leon, who used to be OK until his daughter died of leukaemia. Since then, six years ago now, he hasn't had a job. He wanders the neighbourhood, inhabiting the place like a ghost. At night, we see the police cars outside their house. This time I'm going through with it, Denise tells me. Three weeks later, they're back together again. Maria stops me while I'm walking my dog. She tells me that two nights before, her husband and her sister-in-law got drunk and beat her up. I give her names and numbers, tell her about the resource centre downtown. Let me know if there's anything I can do, I say. But really, I don't want to get drawn into somebody else's madness. When I see her afterwards, she doesn't talk about it, and I don't bring it up. It's 11.30 in the morning. I'm on the freeway, driving home after a doctor's appointment. In front of me, I notice a white car weaving across the lines that mark the lanes. I ease my foot on the accelerator, let them get further ahead. Still, I'm driving at more than 50 miles an hour when the car makes a sudden turn at right angles to the oncoming traffic. I hit the brakes, pull into the lane to my right and it's all moving so fast and another car squeals to a halt, almost hitting the white car and I wonder if they're in some kind of altercation and if someone's going to start shooting and my hands are tight on the wheel and I have nowhere I can drive. Then suddenly, the passenger door of the white car flies open and the car is still moving as the driver, a man, pushes his female passenger out. She hits the road bounces across it once, twice, like a jagged-limbed tumbler toward the outside lane. And I think then that perhaps I'm going to see her die, hit by a car in the fast lane, by a driver who hasn't yet seen all of this, who doesn't know to stop. My heart is a fist in my throat, pounding, pounding. And I look back to the road behind me, and I finally breathe because the traffic in all the lanes is stopped. The woman hits the ground a last time and then miraculously stands up, brushes herself off, walks across the freeway toward the shoulder. She wears the stunned expression of someone who doesn't comprehend what just happened, like the survivors of tornadoes on television whose houses are garbage strewn across the landscape, who cannot yet believe that they are still alive. Later, my friends will ask me, ''What happened to the car?'' Did you get its licence plate? And I will tell them that I didn't have the time, that it peeled away onward on the freeway. But really, it was the last thing on my mind. Lorraine and Imani know boys who've been killed. Their second cousin shot at a gas station, a boy on the high school football team. Ryan, the boy who lived across the street, the sweet-faced 16-year-old Imani and Lorraine used to flirt with, He just got arrested for carrying a gun. Every one of the kids who come here knows someone who's been murdered, I'm told by the executive director of one of the youth organisations I work with. Most of them know two or three or more. I add this information to another grant proposal. At the church-sponsored programme that trains parolees to get a job, I stand by the coffee machine waiting to pour myself a cup. I watch in awe as the young men in front of me tip five, six, seven heaped spoonfuls of sugar into their coffee. They nod when they catch my gaze and then shuffle off to class. The church, I'm told by the programme director, occupies what used to be the headquarters of the Black Panther Party. Later, when I see a book about the Panthers reviewed in Harper's, I study the photographs of their meetings to see if I can recognise any of the rooms. On the drive home at three o'clock on International Boulevard, I stop for crowds of children pouring out of the elementary school, a jumble of backpacks and bright coats and chubby little legs. I see teenage prostitutes shivering on the corners, past low-slung cars with rusted exhausts and shiny spinning rims. In the grant proposal, I quote figures from the census and academic studies. 56% of the adults in East Oakland have no diploma or GED. Unemployment rates are higher than 30%. 40% of prisoners in California prisons are functionally illiterate. More than 65% of employers will not hire a former prisoner. I list all the occupations that exclude anyone with a felony conviction. Medicine, law, real estate, nursing, barber, beautician. It's a long, long list. What I don't write about is what I see in the faces of the young men in the programme. How their features are still, their eyes slow and watching. How there's such caution in their movements. How their bodies are slumped but taut. After my mother died, when I read the newspaper, I turned first to the obituaries I looked for the young ones, younger than my mother, the ones who died tragically, who didn't get their fair shake. When I was done with those, I looked at the reports of murders and accidents, astounded at how death leaps out when it's least expected, and how sometimes you should have known it was waiting there, ready to bite down into flesh. It inhabits some places more than others. The war in Iraq, I heard on the radio, is costing $2 billion a week. It's going to cost $7 billion to build the fence along the border with Mexico. And there are all these grants they're putting out for homeland security. I see the announcements in the research newsletter I subscribe to. The agency whose board of directors I sit on treats survivors of torture. It runs on a shoestring. I heard that a friend, the director of an organisation that works with women who've been raped, had to take out a personal loan to pay her staff salaries the other month. Homeland Security. I spent hours pondering all the meanings of that phrase. This year, for the first time, I go to the remembrance ceremony they've held for the last six years for those murdered in Oakland. I go alone, without telling anyone else. It's in a hotel in Jack London Square, and I know I'm in the right place because there are crowds of teenagers spilling out into the street, talking on cell phones, smoking cigarettes. It's on the second floor in the ballroom, low-ceilinged with drab, spackled walls. It overlooks the railway line. Throughout the evening, the freight trains bluster past. The way they rumble on the tracks and the yearning sigh of the whistle, it makes me feel like we're perched on the edge of emptiness, with only rain and darkness left. There's a buffet dinner, fried chicken, green beans, potato salad, cornbread, laid out on white tablecloths in aluminum trays and plastic bowls. The room is filled with the clatter of silverware, voices bouncing off walls, the trill and chime of ringing cell phones— the ache of babies' cries. There's a table by the entrance. It's filled with the photographs of dead people, smiling, hopeful, desperately young. The media are here, and when Jerry Brown arrives, the bright television lights shine on him. He's been mayor of Oakland since 1999, and during his tenure the murder rate has continued to rise. He's on his way out now. He was just elected California Attorney General as he walks to the microphone, smooth and pink and groomed in his expensive suit and tie. I wonder if I'm the only one to see the irony in that. He gives a pathetic off-the-top-of-his-head speech about how awful all the crime is, how he doesn't know what causes it, but it's complicated, of course. I'm amazed when the people around me have the graciousness to applaud. Then he's off to give interviews to the reporters in the corner of the room. The ceremony itself, the calling of the names, is led by a woman whose twin sons were killed six years ago. She has long braids and a broad-cheeked open face, and I guess she's about my age. Those who have lost someone are urged to step up to the microphone, state the person's name, and then place an origami crane to honour that person on the ficus tree that stands in the middle of the room. The looks on their faces leave me hollow, short of breath. The wet, gasped voices, the unfocused seeing of their eyes. Some cry, but most, when they speak, are tearless. They say the name, and for those that died this year, they give the order in which they died. Twelve, forty-one, one hundred and twenty-three. There are so many mothers... To see them all just stuns me. One after another, they recite the names of their children. One woman tells us her son died 67 days ago. One is there for a child who was killed in 1989. One, an older woman with a ravaged face and shapeless clothes, holds the hand of her dead son's three year old daughter as she speaks. He was killed in October. I rode up with her in the elevator earlier. She was clutching his framed photograph close to her chest. When everyone has placed their crane on the tree, the people at the front read the list of all the others killed this year. Then I stay to listen to the woman who lost her twin sons sing a song she dedicates to them. She has a wonderful voice. It fills the room with beauty. I am sorry when she stops. When I leave there's a group of girls crouched on the floor of the elevator, they're leaning into one another, crying. I turn and take the stairs. It is evening and it's drizzling. The skies have been shrouded in wet grey clouds for days. Susa and I walk the dog to the store, in my waterproof pants and Gore Tex jacket, I do not mind the weather. The sound of the cars hissing through the puddles, headlamps illuminating the rain, make me think of England, the long dark nights of winter, the way the damp sinks into bones. We take one of the side streets on the way back, a narrow street lined with tidy, well-kept houses. The windows are filled with yellow light and warmth. I see the dog, a muscled, snarling shadow behind the screen door and I think it's locked inside, but then it pushes out, charges down the stairs towards us in the street. The man inside shouts, I am screaming, no, 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 as the pit bull lunges towards my dog. I pull my dog backwards, try to get between them. I'm thinking about landing the heel of my boot on the pit bull's skull. Then the man runs down the steps, hurls himself towards the pit bull, wraps his entire body around it pulls it under him to the ground. We half-march, half-run down the street. When we reach the corner, I look back. The man still lies there, on the sidewalk, embracing the dog. Two days later, I'm lying in bed in the early evening with the beginnings of a cold. Swathed under comforters and blankets, a hot water bottle at my feet, an electric heating pad under my back. I'm drinking mug after mug of hot herbal tea, trying to sweat it out. There's a knock at the door. It's Daniel and Lorraine. Zusa lets them in and they come into the bedroom. Daniel lies on the floor with the dog. Lorraine sits at the end of the bed. I ask her how her schoolwork's going. She says it's OK. I ask if they set a date for their move yet. She tells me they have not. Then I tell her about the pitbull. We laugh as I describe the man launching himself like Superman into the street and onto his dog. I'm sniffing and sweating. You probably got it from us, Lorraine says, and I nod. All of them were here the other evening coughing and sneezing and leaning into me as we played a game of Cadoo. We can keep you company tonight, she says, because she knows that Zuzu's is going out. So we watch a movie. It's a scary one. But on the sofa, the dog and the three of us, the lights dimmed, our faces flashing in the television flicker, were piled against one another like animals. Safe. To subscribe to the Writer's Block and hear more stories, please visit www.kqed.org. Slash writer's block. The writer's block is produced by KQED. (laughs)